Hey, this is Marty Martin. And Art Woods. We're in the middle of the fun drive for Season 3. We recently set a goal of 1500 from our Patreon patrons, and we're getting closer, but we're not there yet. Thank you to our patrons and everyone else who's donated so far. We really appreciate your support. If you haven't yet supported the show, please go to patreon.com slash bigbio and make a recurring donation. That will also give you access to our Patreon community where you could submit questions for guests, read show notes, and listen to extra audio. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that on our website, bigbiology.org. We know this is a hard time to ask for money, but if you have the ability to give, we would really appreciate your support right now. If you really can't, please help us out by telling your friends about us and giving us a rating on iTunes. Thanks in advance, and here's a new student spotlight from Amrit Hingarani. Hi there. My name is Amrit, and I'm a senior studying biology and nutrition at Cornell University. I work in Professor Serion's molecular research lab, and we work with a protein called SIRT1. We have examined its role in the survival and invasion of breast cancer cells. Breast cancer is the second most common cancer of men and women worldwide, and each year close to 2 million new cases are diagnosed making a better understanding of this disease of utmost importance. We found that the downregulation of SIRT1 impairs the lysosome, otherwise known as the cell's recycling center. This alters the molecules and proteins breast cancer cells release into the environment around them, which promotes their survival and invasion capacity. Further application of this work would be to target elements of this pathway with drugs or other treatment paradigms as a method to limit breast cancer's aggressiveness. These elucidated relationships may shed light on how SIRT1 downregulation can further other processes such as cellular aging and those causing neurodegenerative disorders, which would unlock a new realm of potential for further study and possible treatment paradigms. Thanks for listening. One of the problems with studying animals is that we just can't see them most of the time. We can follow them briefly or catch them in nets or traps and take some measurements, but that only gives us a snapshot of their lives. Animals that live in extreme environments, like snow leopards or albatrosses, can be even harder to observe for long periods of time. That means there's a lot we don't know about animal movement or behavior, even for conspicuous species that can number in the millions. For example, American eels once comprised 25% of fish biomass in the freshwater rivers of the eastern U.S., but now they're in decline because of hydroelectric dams and other human activities. Although large numbers of eels still go to the Sargasso Sea to breed, no one has ever observed them spawning. Marine turtles also cover huge distances in the ocean, but scientists still don't know where most of them grow up. And scientists studying migrating birds, whales, and insects, for the most part, still don't understand how individual animals decide to stay or go. These problems vexed Martin Wikelski, the director of the Max Planck Institute for Animal Behavior. Martin started his scientific career as an ecological physiologist, but quickly became frustrated about how limited he was and what he could learn about animals using traditional techniques. So he came up with a solution. He would simply attach harmless small transmitters to animals and track them from space. Martin thought this project would take just a few years to get going, but in the end it took closer to 20. Martin calls the project Icarus, named for the mythological figure who flew on human-made wings but too close to the sun. As you'll hear, Martin laments that name choice, but it does capture his team's goal of monitoring the movements of thousands of individual birds, bats, fish, rodents, and even seeds from space. Those transmitters track the location and accelerations of individuals, and also their local environment, like temperature or humidity. The transmitter then sends those data to an antenna on the International Space Station, and the space station beams it back down to the researchers in the lab. The data are available in an online database that eventually anyone will be able to access. In principle, it's, it's like a cell phone system, except it has only one cell, and that is in space. And it almost, it's like a, the, sort of a vacuum cleaner for data. It, it orbits around the Earth, and whenever it comes over a certain area, it sucks up the data. So it tells the tags to get ready, send it up. They have two and a half seconds to send it up. Mark was my PhD advisor when I was a grad student back in the 2000s. And I have lots of fond memories of driving through rural Wisconsin, in the middle of the night, trying to track migrating thrushes from a truck. Surprisingly, the police always believed our crazy explanations for why we were driving so fast at night with an antenna on the top of the vehicle and someone shady in the back with giant headphones on. That work, plus a giant array of radio towers he established in Panama on Barrow, Colorado Island, were the first steps to getting Icarus to fly. Last year, he finally switched the system on, and scientists are beginning to use it. Here's what Icarus sounds like as the data stream into it on the International Space Station. 
Icarus is a huge international collaboration, and scientists from all over the globe will use the data from this system to answer all kinds of questions. A group of the Russian Academy of Sciences hopes to map the movements of the endangered saiga antelope and other at-risk species in Central Asia to identify the most strategic locations for protected areas. Another team at the Max Planck Institute is investigating whether young geese learn about migration paths from their parents. And yet another at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences hopes to track the movements of young jaguars as they try to establish their own territories. On this episode of Big Biology, we talked to Martin about how he got this system off the ground, literally, and what it can tell us. We also asked him about ongoing projects that track the spread of harmful diseases, predict natural disasters, and explain why organisms migrate. One of Martin's biggest passions is to study groups of animals, or collectives. As you'll hear, there are quite a lot of things to learn from the group that one can't even predict from the behaviors of individuals. And few technologies besides Icarus can make this possible. Oh, and by the way, there will also be some international cloak-and-dagger-style intrigue, a few earthquakes, and a rocket launch in a remote location in Kazakhstan in case those things are more your speed. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, especially under these uh, especially interesting uh, times of of COVID-19. We want to talk about a lot of things today, but all of it revolves around this thing called Project Icarus. So what does Icarus stand for and what can this thing do? Well, so Icarus um, stands for a crazy idea. And uh, (laughs) well, it's really sort of standing as an acronym for International Cooperation for Animal Research Using Space. But it was, uh, it, it came up because initially when I proposed that idea, at a, at a NASA uh, workshop, or well, there was actually the International Astronomical Conference in Houston. Uh, they told me to, oh, this is a sort of a great idea, you know, just go over there to this um, stand over there to those guys. And it was the Institute for Advanced Concepts. And they said, oh, this is interesting. So we are actually doing the space elevator. I said, the space elevator? Yeah, and your project fits right in. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's what that, that's how you think about global animal tracking. It's li- similarly crazy as the space <laughs> elevator. And then he said, well, yeah, you know, my my wife really likes these things. She likes to feed birds, and and that was sort of insult upon insult. And I thought, well, okay, so apparently I'm I'm wrong here. <laughs> I think we, we first need we first need a, a name for the crazy idea, and you know, all space projects have these sort of ancient god ideas. But nobody really likes to call it Icarus because that's a, a thing that you know you fly and it comes down and it's a it's a crazy idea to fly close to the sun. But I thought, well, you know, either this thing is really crashing or or we we finally get Icarus to fly, and that's why we why I called it Icarus and then went went back to a high risk name. That's great. <laughs> went back to my hotel room and never showed up at the conference anymore and thought, well. Well, what, what can we? What can this be an acronym for? And I thought, well, international is always good. Cooperation is good. Animals, yeah, we work on animals in space, and then yeah, that that was the the acronym. So, 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 give us just a just a quick timeline too. So, so, when did you first propose this to to NASA, and and how how long has this been developing? Well, so it it uh, started in two thousand and one, or end of two thousand. Um, in Panama, we were just sitting at the canal and ruminating over ideas. And then I think it was 2003 when the real name came up at this during this conference. And then, you know, it turned out that uh, we tried a lot of things, tried um, all kind of concepts and realized no, this is not going to work Then with NASA because they were not really ready at the time. And then... Uh, went to ASA, European Space Agency, and they, that was in 2007, and they thought, well, that's a great concept, but uh, technically probably impossible. <laughs> so so then I switched over to Europe, tried to get it going there, and uh, I think the real, the first real funding we had in 2012, and then it should have flown in 2016, and all kind of technical issues, uh, political issues, all kind of stuff came up, and now we are in the commissioning phase. So it's uh, 
It's a 19, 20 year project. That's a, that's a long one. So you started, I mean, um, I, I remember, so we worked together for, for a while and I mm-hmm. remember some, uh, I think of the early projects in telemetry where you were, you were sort of just tracking individual animals, um, in Illinois. And then that scaled up to the movements of lots of different things across an island in Panama. I mean, were all of those projects sort of coming together to build to this one? Yes. So, I mean, initially, um, I think I, I was much more interested. I mean, like when we worked together, we, we, we wanted to understand um, how an immune system works. And then for, for my part, I realized, well, if I can't track an animal, if I don't know the, the life history of an animal in the wild, I will never really understand this. I mean, the, the physiology. That, that's really my, my desire to understand the, the physiology in the wild of, I mean, the, the stuff that you guys are doing. I mean, that's really the, where I want to be. But I thought, well, you know, I spent maybe three years of my life to establish the system. That's what I thought at the time. And, <laughs> and that, just the start. And that took a, just three that took a little longer, unfortunately. But um, that, that's really where, where it comes from. It, I, I think to, yeah, to, to bring it all together in a way that you have the interactions of animals, you have the life history, the, the lifetime tracking of an individual, so you can track all the, um, the, the problems, the trauma it, trauma it had throughout its life and see how that affects physiology and life history. And that, that's the whole idea. Just maybe give us an overview of what, what the system can do and, and how many animals it can track. Well, in principle, it's, it's like a cell phone system, except it has only one cell and that is in space. And it almost, it's like a the, sort of a vacuum cleaner for data. It, it orbits around the earth and whenever it comes over a certain area, it sucks up the data. So it tells the tags to get ready, send it up. They have two and a half seconds to send it up. And the good thing is it's almost like a multiplexer. So it can, every place where it is, it has a, a very narrow window of sucking up the data. And that means in that window, you get about 120 or so tags at the same time. But that window is only 30 kilometers wide. So about whatever, 18 miles wide. And that's only two and a half seconds at the speed of, the, of a satellite. So that means you can multiplex many, 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 many times. And the, the, the key thing is that, and at the time we didn't even know how big this, this deal is, that we wanted to go from analog to digital. What happened in cell phone technology 20, 30 years ago, we thought, oh, this is, we, we can do that for space. So at the time we didn't know that this is IoT from ground to space. This is what everybody wants to do. So the internet of things, the, the small data communication from ground to space. And that's also why it took so long. An analog system would have been much easier to develop and to do. But a digital, a, a multiplexing system where you can basically regulate everything through software is, is pretty damn complicated. And uh, yeah, now we are glad it really works. Yeah, awesome. So, so in terms of total numbers of animals or tags that you could, you could track around the world, so you've got this satellite sweeping around with a 30-kilometer wide window looking down. So, so what are the total numbers over the surface of the Earth that you could, you yeah. could keep track of? So it's about 15 million unique IDs. That's an okay number, but not for, not for an IoT system. But when you imagine that um, if you can multiplex that or multiply that every, whatever, every 100 kilometers, every... Uh, every so often you can have the same ideas again and again and again. So you can um, multiply these 15 million by, in principle, whatever number you want. Um, and, and then the satellite comes over you, space station in, in the temperate regions three or four times a day. So you can also multiply or multiplex by time so that you can say, well, the, the blackbirds are only red in the morning, the storks at midday, the, the gators in the afternoon, then you can have oh, right, everything, right. all these, these IDs over and over again. And that's a, a wow. pretty, pretty powerful system. a very system. large number. Yes. I mean, not for, yeah. not for container tracking or whatever, <laughs> but for an animal system, for a very small tag system, this is 
probably a lot more than we can ever fill with animals. Yeah, yeah. And and do I understand that, so is there a limit to the density that you can have in one place? So you have to have fewer than 120 tags per 30 kilometers? Yes, so that's a limit. Uh-huh. Um, and that's sort of the same, more or less the same limit as in cell phone technology. If you have too many cell phones in the range of one cell, then they disturb each other. Yeah, I think we've all experienced that. It, what it means is that some, some may, exactly, that some may drop out. I, I think it's very unlikely that you have, you know, in a very small, like within, yeah, within a, a very narrow area, you have more than 100 tags at the time. I mean, if you have it in a, in a, a sensing system, like, uh, you know, if you, if you would use it on uh, trying to understand tree growth or so, then if you want to have every tree marked in a certain area, then you would first have to bundle that information and then send it once up there. But for animals that are mobile, I mean, they, it's, it's unlikely that you will have limitations in the near future. I think one of the, I remember talking about this a lot, one of the limitations was always how big the transmitters had to be and so what sorts of animals you can track. What's the technology now? Yeah, so that's um, a bit of a problem. So we, we, I think it was in 2014, we decided that the original idea that we want to have a larger five gram GPS transmitter or tag and a one gram non-GPS tag, uh, we abandoned that because we, we wanted to have very precise information on the location of an animal. So we said, no, let's just go for GPS for all of them. Um, and that meant that for now, the smallest tag, well, we've always said we want to go below five grams. So now we actually um, at about 4.2 grams. Um, we know we can get lower if you um, take off the the solar panel. So if you only want to transmit a few data points, say 50 or so, um, scheduled over a year, so you have one point every week or so, for, for some studies that's enough, then you can go down to about uh, 2.8 grams. But in principle, we are still, <laughs> yeah, I, I think about five times too large for what we want because we wanted those tags for small songbirds for song sparrows, for um, white-browed sparrows, for wh- whatever. And th- that's actually now developing in a new project that is a, a collaboration with, uh, well, hopefully with NASA. We have some contacts already, NASA, NASA JPL, really good colleagues there. Um, they have fantastic technologies on antennas and, and uh, decoders and sort of the, the kind of computers we need in space. and. Something is really developing there that I think gives us confidence that within a few years, we can shrink these things down to under one gram. Wow, that's awesome. So, so in terms of just thinking about the size of an animal that could, that could safely carry a one gram transmitter, what, 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 what are the body size limits? Well, so for the four gram ones that we have currently, it's roughly about the size of an American robin. Uh, for the one gram tags, it would be a small warbler, like a 20 gram warbler would be okay. So then you can really pretty much tag any of the smallish animals that are flying around the globe. So all of the the warblers that come through the US would be one of the, the key targets. I mean, you know, if I think back of the days in Princeton when, you, when you're out in the, the Institute woods and you see all the warblers, the 15 species of warblers coming through New Jersey, then I really want to know where they are going, where they come from, especially also where they have a good time and where they have a bad time, where they are dying. Because that's ultimately, I think, what we need to conserve them. And, and therefore, this, is, this has always been the, the idea that we need to know this. And the, the tags can tell you right away when an animal dies. So because there are sensors in there that you can use for that. So that's really the, the ultimate aim, that we can track these small animals, warblers, but also lizards or um, large insects around the world and really understand what yeah, they're doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just wanted to jump in and say I totally understand the appeal of birds, but like the holy grail for me is insects. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so what are, what are the prospects for for tracking you know medium sized insects? So the next generation that we are now planning. Um, and I actually, I didn't want to get into that because, you know, last time when I thought, oh, three years, it took 20. And now we're, <laughs> now we're thinking uh, five years and we have a, a new system. And I hope that's really taking Still five optimistic. years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but one, one of the ideas would be, and I think that's a really nice one, that you can take some of the low-flying satellites where we fit with, with our Icarus payload um, and one of them, for example, would be GRACE, the gravity mission, which is a fantastic mission. It's two satellites flying behind each other. You measure very precisely the, the distance between them. And from that, you can measure how the gravity changes on the globe. And what that gives you, and that's absolutely fantastic, is, is for example, groundwater. So where is how much groundwater around the world? Or how thick are the glaciers? And I mean, where's water in general? Because that's what, what's changing the, the gravitational force of the, of the globe. And those satellites are so successful that the, they are in the decadal survey. So um, science in the US really wants them. And that's a, a fantastic collaboration between Germany and, and the US. Uh, very successful in terms of science, but also in technology development. And that is something where these kind of technologies for Icarus would ideally fit. So surface biology, biodiversity, biodiversity movement, which now is obviously a huge issue with Corona, that you, you have to know where these interactions between wildlife, livestock and, and humans are and how they come about uh, to prevent f further uh, pandemics. So, I mean, th those ideas are now, I think, clear to everybody that it's really important. And that is something that we can combine ideally which would mean that we would have a synthetic antenna array that's 120 kilometers wide in space. And that would give us the, the possibility to really shrink down the tags. And that brings me back to the insects because that would ultimately be more like, a, um, yeah, like an active radar kind of, I mean, it's sort of, the, in, in a way, it's the same system. You need a, a coded, an active coded signal that you can read out from space. And if you have a very small signal on ground, you need a huge antenna in space. So that's just, you can't beat physics. And if you have a synthetic antenna on these two satellites, then that is a, a, a distinct possibility. So if you wait another five years or maybe maybe 20, then, <laughs> then you can track your insects around the world. <laughs> All right, all right. I'll, I'll hope to see those data before I'm dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 20 years, it's no big deal. <laughs> So, Martin, you were, you sort of said a minute ago that in the past you had to, or you decided to abandon the the, the one gram transmitters, and then things are changing. But on the five gram transmitters or the four gram transmitters, it, it's not only location data that are being collected, right? There's a lot of different data that are being pulled in. Yeah, and that's the really nice thing. That meanwhile, in these twenty years, um, as you all know, I mean, cell phone technology and uh, all these mobile device technologies developed so rapidly that now we can capitalize on all of that. And what we are now saying is basically that we are doing wearables for wildlife. So it's sort of like a Fitbit thing for any wild animal. So you can measure the 3D acceleration, which gives you all kind of um, health indicators of the animal. Uh, you can measure magnetometer readings, which gives you the, the 3D, I mean, the, the spatial positioning of the body of this animal, which also gives you health, but also death or life. Uh, we can measure um, the, the humidity in that area, uh, temperature, um, pressure, altitude. And, and that also makes every animal out there uh, an environmental buoy. So it really measures the environment, but through the behavior of the animal that we can measure, that we can record, we can also learn how the animal sees the environment. So in a way, it's a, it's a physical measure of the environment, but it's also a biological characterization of the environment where the animal is. And that's fantastic. So every animal out there that is tagged is now an, an Earth observer. It's a, it's a ground-truthing agent for, for our satellite models, for our remote sensing models. 
and that's a, a fantastic prospect. If you think you have, you know, not just a, a few tens of people out there or hundreds of people out there trying to do ground truthing, but you have a hundred thousands of animals out there doing it in every corner of the planet. So can I shift gears just a little bit and talk, get back to a bit the, the nuts and bolts of how you got Icarus going. And um, I just want to ask you to sort of tell us one of your favorite stories about the process. I mean, that could be anything from, you know, tracking some of the first animals um, for you know, preliminary work or interactions with the many different governments that I imagine you've had to work with over, over the past. What's your favorite story? Oh, maybe I can tell two because, <laughs> I mean, for one, you know, it's the... the <laughs> two the, is good. <laughs> the, the crazy things that you, you never think you need to do as a biologist. So first thing you, you think, oh, we want to make this global system. And then somebody says, well, but that's fine. But do you have a, a, an allowance for your frequency? I think, well, no, I don't want to go. No, no, don't, don't tell me I need a, a global frequency allowance. Okay, so we have to go to ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, and convince, uh, I think it's 160 or 180 countries. I mean, it's basically every country in there. We have to convince all of them that we now want to use that frequency for animal tracking. You think, oh my God. So, I mean, sure, you need help from the, in that case, German Air and Space, and, and there's a representative in there, and then you have to write everything up, what you want to do. And, and then, you know, in the end, after years of work, all these uh, okays come back. And, but then there is, you know, say, uh, the Netherlands didn't want to allow our system. Or Pakistan had some question about it. <laughs> and you think, well, my God, what, what, why, why do you not want to allow an animal tracking system? And I think in Holland it was, well, you know, you, you may activate the the uh, fire extinguishing units in some hospitals that run on a similar frequency. And, and you, you just say, well, no, I mean, that's completely impossible. So, but, and then you convince them after a long discussion, well, yeah, it's okay. But then one of the last was the guy from, from Pakistan who was maybe for spy reasons or whatever. He thought, well, no, that's... So then you have to think, well, do we have to switch our system off over Pakistan or is, it, is there any other way... And then we went to yet another meeting somewhere in the world where these guys get together. And then my, my partner, um, she, she talked to him and said, well, you know, we just want to, you know, nice to see you. And we want to we track animals. And then the guy said, oh, that's you guys. Oh, well, no, that's okay. I'll, I'll sign it. So, so then <laughs> we had the, with that signature, we had the final permission to do it around the world. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, international cloak and dagger just to get the signature huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> and then i think the the other i mean absolutely mind-boggling crazy thing is baikonur this um this place out in the middle of absolute nowhere i mean i've i've seen some nowheres but this is really the the nowhere of nowheres <laughs> <laughs> just somewhere in the middle of of eurasia where in the old days, I mean, it was all secret, obviously, but now it's this this huge flat area where you have this, well, the, the, the place where you launch all the cosmonauts since 10 years. I mean, nobody else can launch cosmonauts and they are all launched from this, this crazy place in the middle of nowhere in, in Kazakhstan. And... I mean, being there in the middle of winter when it's like minus 30 degrees out there and you have to prepare your antenna for, you know, the final tests that they really fit into the, the Soyuz rocket. And then um, at some point somebody says, oh, no, uh, no, we, 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 we can't trans, we can't put it like uh, horizontally in the Soyuz. But, you know, and when we said, well, but, you know, since four years, we, we prepared that this is horizontally. And I said, oh, no, that was a misunderstanding. So it has to go vertically. <laughs> and you think, well, how, how, do we, how do we get that done? And then, you know, the, the Russians are fantastic. They, they, they always get it done somehow. I mean, yeah, it was some misunderstanding. And they put another bolt here, another bolt there. And they, they know their, their space engineering. They do it very thoroughly. Um, they've never lost a person out in you know, launching a rocket and, and 
yeah, sure, once in a while you you lose a rocket, but that's very rare. And then you know you you fit this thing in the in the peak of the Soyuz capsule, and then you hope that it arrives up there. And my God, this is uh, this is unbelievable. I mean, there's nothing I hate more than gravity because you have to over <laughs> you have to overcome it to get your your good antenna into space, and it's shaking and burning and whatever. And I mean, a, a space rocket is nothing but a, a big a big bomb. I mean, it's a it's a slow bomb, <laughs> mm-hmm. and standing there a mile and a half away from a, a massive bomb is. I mean, it's visceral. You know, the thing goes off and and it goes up there and, and at the end you just see a little light up there and you hope, well, you know, in a few hours it should be up there. So th- I think that is something that um, was maybe one of the most memorable experiences. And you see that the camels sort of running through the snow there and the, <laughs> the, the horses run around and the, you know, and then the rocket goes into space and it's it's just crazy, crazy. Well, yeah, that's it's hard. <laughs> it's just hard to imagine, you know, so much work being concentrated into an event that's that's so violent and so short. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, the, the one of the reasons why our system was delayed so much was that uh, two rockets before one of the Soyuz exploded. It was a, an unmanned Soyuz, but the the spacesuits that the cosmonauts needed to get our antenna out into on the outside of the International Space Station burned, and that meant they had to recreate those those spacesuits, and they had to retrain other cosmonauts and whatever. I mean, just you know the whole downstream thing, and you you need other rockets to bring the water and the supplies up, and and then I mean, although the Soyuz rockets are super reliable, you think, well, you know, um, maybe out of twelve hundred, only three exploded, but. You know, if if you are right. one of them, is mine going to be one of those three? I, we yeah, only have sent you back. We only have one antenna, and obviously, there's no insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Call up the insurance agency and ask yeah. for uh, <laughs> ask them to cover it. Well, hey, Martin, we want to spend a little time now just. Uh, covering the, the basic biology of some of the major projects that you guys are interested in. And uh, wow, there's so many we'd like to talk about, but I think we need to, you know, keep it within bounds. Uh, and I wanted to start just by asking about um, your your project to use animals as disaster forecasters um, and this idea that, that you can use movements of animals and and predict from that data uh, where volcanoes are going to erupt, where earthquakes are going to happen, and, and sometimes before our instruments can tell us what, what's going on. So mm-hmm. so tell, tell us about that, that project. Well, it actually, I'm glad you're mentioning that because I think that is the most exciting one also scientifically. I mean, we know the least about it and it's still controversial, but the good thing is uh, if you look at what the collective behavior guys are doing, so Ian Cousin, my colleague here now at the Max Planck, or Mick Crowfoot, um, uh, Monkey Mick, who's working on the social interaction systems in, in monkeys, uh, apes around the world. So what, what they have really spearheaded is this idea that um, if you have many sensors and you link them together, there's a new property emerging and this is really like an, an, an emergent new system property. It's nothing that you can predict on the base of the individuals. And now when you think about it, I mean, we, we all know somehow that there is the sixth sense in animals. Ever since the, the Greek philosophers, we know that, you know, there's something weird and magic about animals knowing things. And Initially, I thought, well, you know, it's probably a a crazy idea, but now we have the scientific base for it. So we know that there is an emergent sensing property in linking intelligent senses together. It's a a new property that we don't have on an individual level. And I think that's what we want to capitalize on. And and that's also what we wanted to test and then further test with Icarus. So what we did so far with the predecessors, the, the sort of the early stages of the Icarus tags, was to go to uh, Sicily, to Mount Etna, one of the sort of benign volcanoes, and measure if goats can tell us if something is coming. And it seems, yes, they can. 
And then we also went to um, an earthquake area in Italy. And I can tell you why we chose those areas. I mean, there are lots of loads and loads of failures before. But the, the upshot is in Italy, we went there and one of the uh, earthquake series stopped and a new one started. So we had the, the animals on one entire farm all tagged with high definition sensors, Icarus sensors. And so we have before, during and after these earthquakes and we have 15,000 earthquakes measured and continuous acceleration measured on, on these animals. And they can pretty much tell us what's happening hours before a, an earthquake is really happening. It was really lucky because we were exactly at the place where the next earthquake happened by chance. We, we didn't know. So it was uh, really super lucky to, to have those data also from the volcano in Sicily. Um, but it, it really seems that animals can tell us something about the world that we don't know yet. And in terms of the what what comes out of the the giant data sets that you're collecting, what what about that signals that the animals are are sensing something, and and what is it in the in the environment that they're they're actually picking up on? Well, so for volcanoes and earthquakes, we don't know yet, but what it seems to be, it's it's not a, a selected um, a survival. Um, behavior, because an, an individual earthquake, an individual animal has not gone through many earthquakes or many volcanic eruptions. But we, <laughs> we think, <laughs> presumably, exactly, maybe in Sicily, I yes. don't know. <laughs> but we we think it is the fear of the unknown. So there's something unknown coming, and if you are alone, and actually we've, we've seen that in in the, those cows in in Italy, if they are alone on the field or even in in groups on the field out in the pastures, they don't care. You know, they, they could care less. But if they are in a stable, they are, I mean, they, they are, in that case, they are in chains so that they can walk around a little bit, but not much. They seem to have, uh, they, they seem to be afraid that something is happening there. And what we think is the most likely scenario, at least for the earthquakes, is that um, from the, the future fissure zones, from, from the places where, you know, these, these plates um, slide off on each other, there's so much pressure on the rocks that we know from the geology friends that um, ions are going into, into the air. So they sublime, they're, they're into, in the air, sort of like it's charged air that is then traveling out from, that, from those places. And if you think about an, an animal, I mean, think about yourself, your, your sort of body hair. If, if, if there's a, a, um, a thunderstorm coming, some major thunderstorm, then you see that you know the hair is standing up and you, it feels weird. And we think that, imagine a cow or a dog or even, a, I mean, a, a chicken or a turkey, things are, they, they stand up. I mean, they're full of, of hair and feathers. And it, basically this is a, a sensing organ. And if it's not just one cow in a stable that says, oh, there's something weird, I feel strange now. But if it's the next cow over as well, and then the next cow and, and everybody, it's almost like a, a stock market crash. So everybody's going crazy. And then the dogs come from the outside and bark like hell. And the sheep, the sheep are running around like crazy. And then for, and we've, we've seen that in our data, there's a, about an hour, there's mayhem on this farm. It's complete crazy. And, and then it calms down again. But then that, this hour, if it's like an extended period of craziness, gives us, um, in seven out of eight cases, it gave us the, the precise warning of an earthquake coming. And, and we think that's, I mean, it's, it's the first indication that there is something. It doesn't have to work everywhere. Maybe we were lucky, but we also had the same. We had, I think, um, actually, we also had eight, uh, earth, eight eruptions at, at these two-year observation periods at Mount Etna, and we, the, the animals predicted all eight of them. So it seems that there really is something. I mean, this emergent sense of the environment that is where we, we probably only sense the, the amplifier. So we think that something like a cow or a goat is just the amplifier of everything else that's going on. It's sort of the, the readout machine that we can use. And also, if, if you think about it, you know, border guards, if, if you are at the border and, and um, the dogs are coming, the sniffing dogs, they don't use a, a chemical machine to see whether you have drugs or vegetables or whatever. 
they, they use dogs because dogs are just much better. And if you train them, and, if, and, and it's not every goat or every cow that may be able to do that. That was the fun thing. So we, we talked to the farmers and because um, I wanted to track, you know, foxes or deer because I thought they are more tuned into the environment. And then the farmer said, oh, no, no, our, our goats and cows are much better. So take this cow and that cow and that cow and this <laughs> sheep. And, oh, no, this is not good. She's, she's crazy. They, no, no, They take. knew who the super sensors were. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh. So that, that was actually really interesting. And they also told us, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we, we know. I mean, imagine you, it's, it's the day after a major earthquake. We're driving down from Germany to Italy. We try to, sort of, you know, three o'clock in the morning, drive around the police posts because they're all sleeping, uh, get, into the earth, <laughs> get into the earthquake area. And in the morning, <laughs> you, you just go to some farm. You know, just, just imagine somebody from whatever, Minnesota comes to Alabama and in the morning and says, uh, there was an earthquake and says, oh, I want to tag your, your animals. Uh, fine with you. Okay, right? <laughs> and, then, and then those guys actually at the farm, they said, oh, well, this is interesting because our oh. grandma always um, and grandpa, they always gave the cows wine with sugar after the, uh, after the earthquake because they were so nervous, they were so stressed that that's the only time, uh, that's the only thing that calmed them down. So they knew exactly that, this, that these animals can sense these things and, and, and they knew the effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so this blows my mind because I had imagined uh, that somehow the animals were, were sensing something about early movements of the earth or you know, vibrations that, that presaged an earthquake or a volcano. And so it's amazing to think that it's you know, something about uh, charged air or you know, some, some other sensing mechanism. Yeah. I mean, um, we, we don't know because it could also be that they sense other animals that sense it. So whatever. I mean, the goats could sense yeah, yeah. earthworms that affect the, the, right. the birds and they affect the goats. But we, we don't know. I mean, there's a whole network right. of of sensors right, right but yeah it's probably not the earth movement because if it would be then the seismologists would easily be able to distinguish that or yeah, find that right right yeah. right that makes sense and, and a super quick practical question uh, do you get false positives often so do you do you see freakouts that by the animals that don't predict these events um well we see a quick freakout so five minutes or ten minutes or so that can happen but if it's really extended for um, an hour, then we, we didn't have any false positives. We had one false negative, but only for an earthquake that was 4.0. So it wasn't a, a major one. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there will be some, eventually some false positives and false negatives, I, I, I would assume. So we don't know yet. I mean, this is really a very early stage um, it may also be that we were lucky and, you know, we can't repeat that. But actually, the good thing is we now have since uh, about four months, no, five months now, uh, we have these animals again on track and we get every three minutes, we get a signal here in, on our computers. And uh, once we saw, again, such a crazy one hour mayhem and we said, oh, well, this looks odd. And then it was an earthquake uh, 3.9 right below the animals. So, I mean, it seems at least, you know, sample size one, but at least for this one earthquake, we predicted it based on the real-time data we're getting now. Martin, I think we talked about this in the past, and I'm wondering if you made any progress since. What about other national uh, natural disasters, like being Floridian hurricanes? Um, that's interesting. I mean, we, <laughs> we tried to... Um, actually, we, we did tag uh, frigate birds in the Caribbean, and the, the idea was, uh, so we go to, say, uh, Mexico, um, because there, there were, prediction was, you know, climate change, lots more hurricanes in that area of the world. And then we said, oh, well, that was, I mean, really bad for the people, obviously, but really interesting for us. Let's tag some frigate birds because they should be the ones that are escaping because there are reports that even up to Illinois or or North Hampshire, somewhere very far north on the East Coast, you, you get frigate birds um, in the wake of these hurricanes. And the, the problem was that uh, for three years, there was no hurricane in that area. So, I mean, problem. I mean, it's great for, fantastic for, so for the people. Problem for you. Pro problem <laughs> yeah. for us, yeah. yeah. But, but that's also why I think Icarus is so important that now 
that we we have this global network of reporting stations, uh, we can be much more inclusive and much better in in trying to understand what animals tell us. Because so far we don't know. And and also, I think there are other sensors. I mean, the for example, the frigate birds you could have you could use as measurement buoys for telling us the humidity in the first 20 meters above the, the water. And this is what the, the hurricane predictors told us. They need to know the temperature and humidity at the very transition level between ocean and air. And that's difficult to measure in these areas, but the birds are going there and they can tell us. We can uh, potentially also use the animals as biological sensors. And I think that could be really exciting because something like a European stork, they are actually known in Africa as the desert locust birds. So they always show up before or at the places where the desert locusts get off the ground. And I mean, as you probably know, there's a massive problem now in Kenya, Tanzania, um, all over those areas uh, with desert locusts in the wake of the Yemen war and the desertification and whatever. And the, our, our storks actually tell us where these uh, desert locusts come off the ground. We're still trying to you know, calibrate and adjust and, and really get the, the best information out of that. But they, they know, and if we can read their behavior, then they can really tell us. Wow, so they, they know where the, the locusts are going to emerge. Um, apparently, and uh, what we think, and that's also so far unpublished, but they probably smell it over fairly large distances because the, the, the early instars have a very particular smell and um, we also know what it is, the chemical. Um, I don't want to tell anybody because uh, if, if you, it's easy to get, so you, you, could, you could easily get that. And we think you can, by doing that, you can you know, just buy a, a gallon of that and attract lots of storks and shoot them. So we, we have this conflict of interest whether we really want to publish it or not. <laughs> but but we, think, we think that we know that birds are, are going by smell. Uh, for, for many of the foraging uh, areas that they need to find. So we think that they probably also smell where the desert locusts get off the ground. Wow, yet another piece of evidence about bird smell. We just talked to Ellen Ketterson a little while ago about okay. smelling juncos and yes. the old uh, idea that birds really aren't very good smell. <laughs> they don't have a very good sense of smell. It just changes daily. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit and um, talk about your efforts um, as far as disease surveillance goes. And you you mentioned in an email exchange earlier, earlier about the fruit bat projects you're doing in Africa, thinking about those as sniffing dogs for a zoonotic disease. So what's what's that about? What's going on with that one? Yes. So bats, as we all know, have a really bad um, rap. I think the, the key is that you sometimes often find antibodies for diseases in bats. And that doesn't mean that they transmit that to other creatures or to humans particularly. But what it means for us is that we can follow these bats and find out which of the individuals have antibody for which disease, because that would mean that during their travel, they must have met the host, the, the real host for those diseases. And what that tells me is that these, these bats are basically our sniffing dogs. So we can send them out and say, well, you know, you go out, find the disease for us, uh, come back to us, we take a blood sample, and you, basically then you tell us what you saw during your last trip. And yes, that's complicated, but I think in the, in the long run, this gives us a much better, a fundamental insight in where these diseases are hosted, who, who the host could be, and I think the corona crisis has brought that home better than, than any other uh, pandemic in the past. Uh, we, we need to know where these interactions happen and who, who transmits the disease in, in the first place. The key, I think, for us is that we can use not only bats, but many other animals as our sniffing dogs for those kind of problems, either indirectly through their antibodies or in some cases, like, say, in, in the ducks, mallard ducks that, that are reservoir for avian influenza, then you can study it directly in the ducks. So in, in those cases, yes, it's, it's directly the animals that you need to study. I'm, I'm trying to envision this process and using fruit bats. And 
if you had them tagged, you could tell where they where they go, but you couldn't necessarily know which other animals they're interacting with directly, right? And so do you do you need other animals also tagged if you're going to get the details of those interactions? Yes, exactly. So I think initially it would only be that you say, well, you, you tag the fruit bats and say all of the ones that go through whatever, southern Congo are the ones that have antibodies for Ebola. Then next you, use, you, you ask an animal in that area um, to narrow it down. And it, it will take years. It, it's, not, it's not an easy enterprise. But I think it's probably the only way to do it. And if you, you, know, if you have many, many, many animals out there and study all of them carefully, then you know you can you can look at Corona, at Marburg, at SARS, at whatever, at MERS, uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome in camels. I mean, or in uh, uh, swine fever. I mean, all of those are, uh, I think, very important sniffing animals, sniffing sniffing wild dogs uh, or sniffing flying foxes for us that can tell us. And you, you may also discover that some of these animals host these viruses. I don't want to exclude that possibility. You know, the the thing with SARS-CoV-2, I, I wonder, you know, if, if the, the challenge with SARS-CoV-2 and, and, you know, zoonoses generally is that we don't know their problems until they are. So, you you know, you could, you could focus your attention on MERS or SARS, the other SARS or the current SARS or, or whatever it might be. But we also have to worry about what's coming next. And the, the power of, of Icarus, in my eyes, is that you know, you could get a sense of, of who's going where and sort of where diversity is most concentrated, when it's most concentrated. And then the difficult part, because it's so expensive and because it's so laborious, focusing the surveillance efforts in the places where, you know, the animals are telling you you should be. Exactly. And so I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, we've also shown that with a very simple system, we worked with colleagues in China and put some very simple uh, cell phone tags on domestic ducks that were um, bred for Chinese New Year and then from the farmers brought to the markets. And nobody knows how these travel routes of these ducks go and where they congregate and who is being slaughtered where and sold where and eaten where. And that's a a very important knowledge to to understand, well, you know, if there was a disease outbreak here, where do these animals, these diseased animals go? I mean, we, we know that now. I mean, it's, it's very important to know the, the routes and the interactions. And that's very simple to do with these tags. And exactly as Marty just said, the, the more we know about these travel routes and the interactions and the, the, the nodes that are involved in the social networks, the, the better we can predict. And in the end, it's really about these predictions that we can prevent uh, global zoonotics. Um, great. So, so the the third one I wanted to ask about is um, you already talked about songbird migration and warblers in, in North America, but you also have a big project that focuses on European blackbirds and in in particular on this phenomenon of, of partial migration. Mm-hmm. So, so what what is that, and what do blackbirds tell us about that? Well, that's I think really fascinating because the question of should I stay or should I go? I mean, should I move out of my home area is probably one of the most difficult ones and most uh, consequential ones for any animal. And we know that for humans that, uh, you know, move between Africa and Europe or South America and North America, or, I mean, wherever the grass is greener, animals will go and people will go. And to understand those decisions, um, I think is, is really key for many predictions. Now, in the blackbirds that we have in Europe, it's really exciting because you have populations that are stationary in France and Spain, they're partial migratory in Germany, so maybe only a third or half of the birds are moving to the south in winter. And then you have populations in Poland and Russia where all of them move. Say in, in Germany, um, you have a th- say a third of the, of the animals are moving and it's always the same. So it's if, if you are a mover, you move every year. And if you stay at home, you stay at home your life. And the question is, how, how can we understand how that works? And the, there is this idea that there is a genetic base for that. 
that then translates into physiological adaptations for staying home in the cold or going to the south in the winter, but then you have to travel. And to really understand that, I think that the key is that you have a genetic, you know the genetic background, so you know that this is a, this is a Russian blackbird. It really supposedly has in its genes that it wants to move. But now what you can do with Icarus is we take this uh, Russian blackbird and bring it, say, to France and see, well, does it, in that new environment, does it recognize it's already in a, in a good place? Does it still want to move? So what is the interaction between your genetic setup and your environmental determination or your environmental surrounding? Where, where does this plasticity come from? Exactly. Yeah. And, and then mm. we can also make... Uh, Hybrids, so you can take a, a Russian blackbird and breed it with a French blackbird and see what does the offspring do and what does the offspring do in Russia, in Germany, or in Spain. And that's so far that has been pretty much impossible because you couldn't track these animals. And now we have built up over the last um, yeah, six or, or 10 years facilities where these blackbirds breed on their own in captivity in a beautiful aviary setting. So they have, I mean, they love it because they have no predators, no foxes, no sparrowhawks. So they, they are actually now, they're breeding in masses again. And then we take these youngsters and train them to feed on their own. So they get worms on the ground and in the aviary. And then they pretty much know everything they need to know outside. They get it from their parents. And um, we actually know that they survive almost a little better than the ones out there probably because we feed them so well in the early in their early phase of their life so they they're doing really well and it means that we can now really have these these interplay between genetics and environment and study it really in the wild and for us that's fascinating because it's really it's really what you want to know with your genetic background in a new environment what are you doing so, so what are the conclusions so far about relative influences of, of genetics and environment and, and their interaction? Yeah. Well, so, so far what we've done is uh, bred all of them in Germany. And it's actually, I should mention Jesko Parteke. He's the guy who's really a uh, colleague, collaborator of mine. He's in, in our group. He's doing that. Um, so he has taken them and brought them all to France this winter with Icarus tags. And now what we do see is that the Russian blackbirds have actually moved, started out to move in spring. We don't know yet where they moved to. If they move back to Germany or back to Russia, we don't know yet because Icarus is only starting now. But we know everything is working. Um, so we now are really keen to do this experiment for real this summer, this fall, throughout the winter and really understand, learn how this interaction works. So we're, we're totally excited about these new possibilities. Wow. Martin, I have to ask, how many birds was he moving when he did that? That sounds like quite an adventure to haul a lot of birds to France and then let them go. That's almost like putting your satellite on top of the rocket yes. and crossing your fingers. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so biological version. Yes, so so Jesko had the same thing. So, so for the last 10 years, he... he learned how to breed these blackbirds and how to, you know, make it all happen. And uh, this year we had, I mean, last season we had uh, over 200 young captive bred blackbirds that he put out. So really exciting. As, I mean, it's a really good sample size. And uh, the really fun thing is that we also have a fantastic uh, postdoc from Russia. And, you know, he's just uh, bringing those Russian blackbirds here and taking the other ones back, the, the captive bred ones, so although this is sort of in principle, um, well, I mean, it, you know, there, there's no law against it because nobody ever wanted to do this. So he's just deciding that, you know, talking to all the authorities and convincing them that this is possible. And yeah, in Europe, you can do it as well. So from, from Germany to Spain or France, you can do it. So yes, it's crazy. But the, the really nice thing is also there are always kids coming along. So we have what we call our Icarus ambassador kids. So they are between eight to 18 years old. And some have actually spent the last 10 years working with the scientists at the Institute in their summer holidays or whatever. So they're really tuned into these kind of um, experiments. 
and and they go along. You know, they they go along and release the birds in Spain or they release them in Poland, and it, it's really exciting for the kids to see that as well. So um, we have just a couple more questions. If you have the uh, the energy, sure, um, sure. What's the what's the future for Icarus? What's I have to ask, what's the craziest project that you want to do or or maybe even have in the planning stages? I think the craziest project is I, I want to know how the cuckoos from Spain to Japan find their way into Angola. Because they, they all seem to winter down in yeah, southwestern Africa. And cuckoos, obviously, <laughs> you don't have your parents to show you. So it probably is something like this collective phenomenon, this swarm intelligence that they just, you know, hit the road, hit the the highway, the fly highway um, with everybody else and somehow find their way into Angola and then meet each other there. But I want to know how, how they do it and how the different populations do it. So that's that's one of the crazy projects. And the other one, I think, is that I want to understand what the eels, um, the, the, the yeah, fish, are doing, how do they find from their lake? I mean, from the lake we have here in, in southeastern Germany, um, they, they supposedly go to the Sargasso Sea. Um, if that's true, nobody knows for sure. But uh, we have developed systems where we can very carefully attach very small tags uh, to the body of these eels, basically like to um, sort of a, a body piercing, sort of a, a very small implant under the skin and attach the tag and then um, dislocate it after a while so it pops up to the surface of the ocean and, and transmits. And that's how we want to uh, recreate the, the migration. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest migrations on Earth. You know, if you imagine all these, these eels going to maybe one or two or three places in the Sargasso Sea and making these huge... Um, these, these huge sort of uh, parties to reproduction parties in, in, in the Caribbean or close to the Caribbean. I mean, it must be a massive, a massive uh, spectacle and nobody really knows about that. So that's something that we really want to understand. But there's so many more things. I mean, it's just, you know, once you, once you try to really understand what's happening and you put tags on animals, they always tell you that everything is different. I mean, it's it's amazing that our preconceptions of how nature works are so based on, on averages and, and, and some, some data that we have, but they will not tell us what they really do. And if Averages you, and anecdotes, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so if you had to just sort of, you know, predict into the future in five or 10 years. And I know uh, we, we've already established that that's a uh, fraught with all kinds of problems, but, <laughs> yes. but, but how, how many, how many species and how many individuals are you going to be tracking in five or 10 years time? Well, we already have hundreds of labs around the world that want these tags. So we are actually very sorry that we are so late and so sort of sluggish in providing them, but hopefully this summer we can start um, getting those tags out at a really cheap price because it's, it's, basically government-funded. So we think that, um, we, we call it the 100,000 sentinels, so that uh, within a few years we want to have 100,000 animals out there, which is still, you know, it's, a, it's an absolute minute part of the animals that are being studied anyways. But having those with, with sensors for their life and the environment, I think would give us a, a completely new understanding of life on the planet. So it's really almost like, like a life cast where now you have a weather forecast, you have a life forecast for planet Earth that animals give us. And we know that the, on the space station, we can run the system with the Russian colleagues um, until probably 2028. But um, we have plans with NASA to have uh, some small pathfinder missions that they want to fly as early as next year, which is really exciting. As, as tests for the system capabilities. And then we want to have uh, a bunch more payloads on other satellites. I mentioned the, the GRACE satellites. Potentially, we, we don't know if that's going to work, but there, there's, a, there's a possibility. Um, and I think as soon as we can show the power of the system, I think others will join. We, we know that from, I mean, India, from Japan, many other um, 
spacefaring nations want to be part of that system because it's a, it's a new observation system for planet Earth. And I think we urgently need that. And we can use a, a bunch of uh, canaries in the coal mine to tell us what's happening out there. Yeah, just in time to catch the major effects of climate change, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, Martin, uh, the last question is just um, what else do you want to say? Is there anything that we haven't given the opportunity to bring up that you wanted to make sure to, to get out there? Um, well, maybe it's just to say that you you always stand on the on the shoulders of, of giants so that the, you know, the people before us that had um, loads of fantastic ideas, I mean, the physiologists, the ecologists, the radio astronomers, and we, we build upon their knowledge and, and also upon their help to really get these systems going. So there are always single individuals that really helped us. I mean, old, old professors, old administrators at the air and space agencies that really understood how important this thing is. And without their help, it would have been completely impossible. And I think one of the best stories is probably the guy, uh, Lego Stajev. He was the, the first general constructor um, at this uh, major human spaceflight company, space, state company in Russia. And he's actually the one who built the, um, the, the, he built parts for the entry capsule of Gagarin. And he was still alive three years ago. So he was sort of the, the main propagator of this idea in Russia. And it was fantastic to see that, you know, he, we, we told him this idea and said, well, we can learn from animals, we think. And he said, oh, yeah, yes, I know this from my dacha. And uh, this is a good idea. I will support it. And that's, that's how it worked. You know, some people that have a vision for how the future of the planet could be, and they think this is possible. The International Space Station circles the Earth 16 times a day. And each time it passes overhead, the Icarus transmitters wake up and send their data into space. Up until now, the tracking tag scientists used had to transmit their data using cell phone networks, just like text messages. With thousands of animals tagged, projects can get really expensive quickly. Martin hopes that Icarus will make data collection from hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands of individuals at once much easier and much cheaper than current options. In the coming years, Martin's team has many plans for improvement. Right now, the only antenna is on the space station, but they hope to eventually launch their own satellites. The current setup can only cover about 80% of the Earth's surface. By adding more capacity, the system could cover more of the globe and read data from more transmitters more frequently. Icarus could thus give scientists a clear picture of where organisms are going and what they're doing en route and why. As Icarus matures, we could eventually use it to predict where new disease outbreaks are likely, where conservation dollars are best spent, and perhaps even where natural disasters are likely to strike. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember that we're in the middle of our season two fundraising drive. You can make a recurring donation on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio, or a one-time donation on the website, www.bigbiology.org. Please help us out. Without your support, we can't continue to produce the shows you love. We've got a few more episodes coming your way before we take a short break over the summer. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Mike Levine runs our social media channels and produces the student spotlights. Dana Baxter helps with background research, and Steve Lane manages our website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.